Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factor, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. On today's show, I'm going to dig into a cognitive bias, a known seemingly illogical bit of human psychology that nonprofits have to understand and take advantage of if they want to grow their community and their support base. Many are already doing it, are taking advantage of it without realizing it, including probably your organization in one way or another, but they're not using it nearly to its potential. And today, I really want to dive into all the ways that you can do that to maximize your support base and create more heroes for your cause. Before I do, though, I'd like to tell a little story and bear with me for a couple of minutes because I promise it is actually relevant to what we want to talk about. See, this weekend, as most people in the U.S. were celebrating Halloween, I attempted to assemble and hang an IKEA set of cabinets for the fourth time. It's the Calyx, if you guys are familiar with all the different IKEA ones, where you could configure it into different kind of arrangements of drawers and shelves and with doors and not doors. And I've assembled dozens probably by now of uh, pieces of IKEA furniture over the years. This one didn't seemingly present a challenge either to put together at least. I put the two Calyx boxes uh, together and then it was time to attach the mounting rails on the wall. If you're familiar with the system and really it's okay if you're not, I'm not trying to advertise IKEA here, but they have these special uh, metal rails that you attach to the wall and then you can just hang the cabinets onto the rails. Easy enough in theory, of course, Good practice says you should find studs to uh, drill into and to screw the uh, mounting rails into. And I did try to find those. But this wall, as it turns out, doesn't seem to have studs, at least not in the area that I wanted to hang. The uh, wall is actually adjacent to the garage. So the other side of the wall is, is inside our garage. The outside is leading towards our den. And it's a long wall where we wanted to have uh, two kind of cabinets on the bottom with large doors and drawers. And then up top, we wanted to have hanging these additional cabinets to put stuff away out of view. Because, you know, when you have three kids in the house, there's always things everywhere and you want to find ways to stow them nicely and hopefully in an organized fashion. Anyway, maybe because it's the other side of the garage door, but this, uh, the garage wall, but this wall was clearly built differently somehow. And there were no studs for me to screw into. So I went back out to the hardware store and bought toggle bolts, which when you push into a wall, there's a little butterfly thing or a plastic thing that you could pull back. And it really presses uh, against the back of the wall, keeping anything from pulling through or ripping down. I bought the bolts, drilled the hole and pushed the toggle bolt in and hit the garage wall instead. So apparently there's a gap between our den wall and the garage wall. And uh, it's not long enough for the toggle bolt to actually go in and be able to spring open. I tried a couple of different types of bolts. None of them work. Go back to the hardware store again. This time I buy plastic anchors and metal anchors to screw into the drywall that will uh, hopefully hold a lot of weight. They're rated 75 pounds each. There's four per cabinet, two cabinets, but each one would then theoretically be able to support 300 pounds, which we have no intention of actually testing. 
but should do. So uh, I got those in and using them was able to attach the rails to the wall about an inch lower than the ceiling or actually where the cabinets would hang about an inch lower than the ceiling. I got the cabinets up with a little bit of heft and some assistance. I was able to actually get them onto the, uh, onto the rails and then uh, noticed something a little odd again. Whereas the back of the cabinet was about an inch down from the ceiling, the front of the cabinet was actually literally touching, pressed up against the ceiling. Now, this would not have necessarily been a problem. I could have let it go if not for the fact that we want doors on these cabinets and the doors swing out, which I tried just to confirm, but makes them actually bump into the ceiling and can't even open. So unless I'm willing to cut open a section of ceiling, which I'm not prepared to do, I had to think of something else. Either lower the cabinets, which might make them look even stranger, hanging off the wall lower down, or find a way to kind of make them vertically level. So um, I wound up coming up with a solution, which was to use washers. I put washers in as spacers between the wall and the railing in order to try to get it flush uh, level with the, um, with well, 90 degrees uh, to the floor and ceiling. And so the top of the cabinets will be more parallel with the ceiling. That meant, of course, going back out to the hardware store, buying longer screws, buying all kinds of washers because, oh yeah, of course, the wall is not consistent to itself. I need a different number of washers in different parts of the wall quality construction that I live in. And after multiple experiments, was actually able to get the rail up relatively straight, relatively uh, vertically straight, and mount the cabinets onto it in such a way that they were parallel to the ceiling and parallel and uh, lined up with each other. And the final test was able to put the doors on and voila, hallelujah, they finally opened. Now, you might listen to this story and either think, why in the world, A, is he telling this story? <laughs> but B, why didn't he just call a professional either to put him up in the first place or when it didn't work the first time, call someone who knows how to do these things, a handyman, a carpenter, a drywall person, I don't know, somebody who actually understands the principles of these types of construction and can do it quicker and probably better in the long run. Um, or you might be thinking of a similar experience that you had, whether it was like me putting together some piece of Ikea and maybe having extra parts at the end or uh, having a, a Lego set that was incredibly challenging to put together, like the one that uh, one of my kids loves to do. And the interesting thing is that whatever you undertook, as long as you were able to complete it, you're probably looking back on it with pride as I do now, every time I walk through that room, basically to the den, I look at those cabinets and I think there's something that I was able to do. There's something that I achieved. And it actually makes me value them more than if I'd had someone else assemble them and put them up, which is a little bit odd, but luckily this is not evidence that I'm crazy and nor is it evidence to the contrary, of course, but uh, luckily for me, this is a phenomenon that has been studied and actually aptly named the IKEA effect. And this is the cognitive bias that I want to focus on today. 
See, a little over 10 years ago, behavioral economists Michael I. Norton, Daniel Moken, and Dan Ariely set out to examine this phenomenon that had actually been observed and used by marketers and companies like IKEA for decades. In their experiments, they had individuals who were not particularly skilled at assembling furniture or other tasks to assemble IKEA furniture or build a Lego set that was complicated or fold origami for the first time. They were then asked how much they would pay for the resulting creation, the product of their efforts, and how much they would pay for the same item created by a professional. So if you've got some work of origami that you created versus someone uh, else created that is a professional that clearly looks better and more uh, structured, more well-built, whatever it might be in case of furniture, overwhelmingly, the participants agreed to pay more, as much as 63% more for the one that they created even though their final product was not as well done as the professionally created one. And they were able to see that and admit it. Then they took people who were not part of the creation process and brought them in and asked them the same question about the value of the objects. They were asked what they, uh, the value they would assign to someone, to an object that was professionally assembled versus one that an amateur was uh, assembling. And guess what? They didn't have the same bias. They preferred the professional one, it seemed to them, uh, worth more and more valuable. Well, this is perhaps a strange phenomenon, but if we think about it in a few different ways, we can actually understand it, and nonprofits can harness that same cognitive bias, as it's called in behavioral science, to create stronger connections and raise more money. The fact is that once someone has participated, as this study shows, in the creation of something, and in your case, the furthering of your mission or the creation of a program, their personal narrative, their identity expands to include that they are now someone who supports your cause. And with that new identity, they're more likely to keep supporting through volunteering, amplifying, and donating, and raise their support level as they feel more invested and a stronger connection to the results, positive changes that they want to see in the world. So the more you could make them a part of the process, the more you could involve them in helping you understand what people want and deliver on those things, the more they're going to take ownership of it, the more there's another effect called the endowment effect, the more they're going to endow your work with value and therefore feel it's more valuable to support. So here are a few ideas that I put together <clears throat> that'll hopefully get you thinking about how you can capitalize on the power of the IKEA effect to create more heroes for your cause. If you will, ways to engage your current and possible new supporters in the work that you're doing and get them more and more invested in it. The first way is to simply offer more volunteer opportunities. Even in a time like a pandemic that we're going through now where not everybody is able to or interested in getting together to do something in person to volunteer, there are ways to get them to volunteer online to do certain things on your behalf that will somehow forward your mission. Uh, this is a good time to point out that next week, when we get back to our regular type of uh, interview show, we're going to have on the show Dana Litwin, who is a volunteer engagement expert, and will be talking to us about some of the ways that we can activate more volunteers online to get them more connected with our work 
the second way is to create behind the curtain experiences. If you've ever gone to see a Broadway show or any kind of theater really, and then gone backstage to see how it all works, there's a certain level of mystery to it, but when you get back there, it doesn't just go away. It's not, oh, it's a trick. There are no illusions per se. There are ways that we make things happen in theater and are actually fascinating to see, oh, wow, that's how that puzzle came together. That's how Mary Poppins was able to fly, right? Those are the behind the curtain experiences or meet the cast. Well, in your world, you can invite them physically or virtually to see how their support is helping further the cause, helping to uh, create certain results in the world and let them participate in that feel good moment of service delivery. There was an organization that still exists, the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization that I was a part of when I was in high school. And every year, they probably still do this, they have a Passover food drive where they will assemble care packages for folks who cannot go out and buy their own Passover goods, whether they are not able to leave their house or they can't afford all of the different things that it takes to have a proper Seder, which is the celebratory meal on Passover. So they would invite high school students like myself and my friends to come and put the packages together. And then for those of us that had cars, which in my last year of doing it, I did actually go out and drive these packages, deliver these, deliver these packages to the folks who needed them. Let me tell you, that was an amazing experience that I will never forget. I still recall uh, knocking on doors and elderly people opening the door and seeing this package and the gratitude in their eyes and in their voices was just so incredible for me to experience that it probably laid a strong foundation for all the other volunteer work that I've done since then. It is an incredibly powerful thing to be able to first-hand witness the accomplishment of a mission in some small way, which, by the way, you could also do virtually. I didn't have to uh, necessarily go there to drive. If you are delivering goods like that, for example, maybe you can have a camera and have that moment captured on camera when someone receives the, the benefit of a donation or of some kind of support, right? Then you could share that out with the people who helped make it happen. The next thing that you could do is a variation on the behind the curtain experience, which is invite them to town halls. And there the supporters can get an inside view and possibly the opportunity to play a part in anything from the planning of a new program to the direction of the entire organization. So if you think about your board, for example, they take part in a lot of the decision-making and setting the direction for your organization. They are also the most invested supporters for your cause and for your nonprofit. Well, what if you could offer basically another level of that to other supporters, to people who do care about the success of your mission? Maybe they're part of the community and you can poll them on what services they want or how they want something delivered or how something's working for them and let them then have that voice that gets incorporated now the danger is, of course, ignoring them if they if you do ask for suggestions, because then they'll feel disenfranchised. But this is essentially enfranchisement where you're drawing them in, making them feel like part of the process and the solution. Again, more invested, they will be more likely to want to support it going forward. The next idea is to help 
connect your supporters to beneficiaries. Now, again, in the case of the uh, deliveries that I was doing, it was a very direct experience where I could interact with one of the beneficiaries. And it doesn't have to be that person to person. Although, by the way, that could also be done online where you could set up calls between beneficiaries and benefactors uh, where there could be some sort of interaction and some sort of personal connection. There's another organization that I volunteer with where I get to work hands-on with a beneficiary uh, and see their transformation over time, which I can't take full credit for, but I do feel a sense of pride in and want to keep supporting. So whether it's through in-person or uh, indirect, uh, through digital means connect connectivity, or just through great storytelling where you could tell the story of the impact that my work or my support has been has been responsible for in a way, then you're going to once again make me feel more invested uh, in the work that you're doing. Similar to how every time I walk by the uh, IKEA shelves, or there's a project in the basement where required some creative plumbing after certain contractors left things, let's just say, not done. Uh, it took me several trips to Home Depot, but I was able to get it done. And every time I go down to the basement, even though most people can't see it, and to be honest, it's crude and not pretty, I still feel a sense of pride and accomplishment every time I go down there. So connecting someone to the results of your work, and in this case, specifically to beneficiaries, forges a really strong bond and makes them want to keep supporting you and donating more. The next one is to give people more agency. And what do I mean by that? Uh, I like to say that good storytelling, especially on websites and in digital media in general, is a choose your own adventure, not a linear novel or movie that you can't touch. Similarly, when we're talking about trying to engage our supporters, if we give them options of how they want to proceed on their hero's journey with us and how they want to support the work that we're doing, which might be, of course, uh, asking them if they would prefer to volunteer or to donate or both. And oftentimes we ask them to donate after they've volunteered and to volunteer after they've donated, right? Both of those are, uh, one can easily lead to or trigger the other. So that's one way to give them more agency. Another way is even when just asking for donations, which program do they want to support or which result do they want to see? One of the, um, one of the ways that you can really boost your donations is to just simply tie specific numbers, uh, so $50, for example, to specific results like uh, supply school supplies for uh, an entire classroom of kids for a year or a month or whatever it might be. $50 might not be realistic for a whole year. So if you can tie that and then show me that my donation has had that impact, hopefully even connect me in one way or another. And again, it doesn't have to be direct one-to-one -one or in person. It could just be through video or other types of content, storytelling, connect me to the beneficiaries and the results that the impact that it's had on their lives. Well, now I feel like I decided what to do, i.e. support this particular program or make this particular donation. And it had this result something that I could feel good about and creates reinforcement for me going forward. The last one that I want to share today is, well, if you know me and this show, then I'm all about storytelling. And as I've mentioned, the choose your own adventure stories, you have to tell the right kinds of stories 
better. As much as possible, use stories to connect your supporters' actions to visible, tangible, as much as possible, results in the world. Tell them the stories of, of impact that their time, their money, their support, whatever way it came in, helped make possible. And whatever you do, don't say, hey, we did this. Don't even just say, we couldn't have done it without you. Be direct. Say, you did this. You achieved this. You donated this, and it created this result as much as you possibly can. There is a caveat that I want to uh, touch on real quick, which is don't ask for too much. Whether you're creating a volunteer opportunity or you're asking for a donation, if you ask for too much and, and or promise a result that won't necessarily be achieved, then you're going to have the opposite effect, the disenfranchisement effect, where I'm going to, let's say I wasn't able to put together those shelves and, and hang them, those uh, cabinets. Then every time I walk by there, I'm going to feel like, oh, this was a failure. It's a negative uh, association with the entire process, with Ikea, with mounting things, with my house, whatever it might be, right? All the opposite effects from what you want to have with your organization's supporters. So make sure that it's a, a donor-sized problem or a volunteer-sized problem that can be achieved. And then, of course, tell them how much their, uh, their work was able to do, how much change it was able to create in the world. Uh, you don't have to remember all of this and you don't have to take extensive notes. Of course, we have show notes for everything that I'm talking about in this episode. I also have a blog post called uh, The IKEA Effect uh, on the .org strategy website that you could check out. Again, it'll be linked in the show notes for this. If you're interested in learning more about how to incorporate behavioral science in your organization and your work, I highly recommend that you check out episode 19 with Dr. Beth Carlin, where we talked about several different cognitive biases and elements of behavioral science, psychology, behavioral economics that you can use and should be at least aware of in your communications and your work as an organization. Be sure, of course, to check back next week where we're going to have our interview with Dana Litwin talking about the ways that you could do the first thing that I talked about today in terms of increasing supporter investment, which is more volunteer opportunities online during times of pandemic or all year round. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app so that you could know when new episodes come out. And please leave a review on iTunes so that more people can discover this program and we could help them activate more heroes for their cause as well. As always, thank you so much for all the work that you do to make the world a better place for all of us. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review. 